I'm tired of people saying we've given up the title, we've given up scope of work to GCs, we've given up scope of work to PMs, we've given up scope of work to CAs. And I'm like, okay, what are you going to do about it? Welcome to another episode of Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very, very excited to be joined by Evelyn Lee. Hi. <laughs> where do I start with Evelyn? She is a tour de force in the industry. For the past 15 years, she's been a vocal member of the architecture community and is currently advocating for the profession within her roles at Slack as a senior experience designer at AI National, as a treasurer of AI National, up till 2021, I believe, and also as a founder of both a podcast and I guess a consultancy, right, called Practice of Architecture. So we'll probably dive a little bit into that as well. Thank you, Evelyn, for joining me. Yeah, thank you for those kind words. And it's good to see some familiar faces in the attendee list. So hi, everyone. Awesome. You have fans, uh, devoted fans, that's great. Um, (laughs) So to start our conversation, we've kind of built this as a conversation around leadership and management. And we left it intentionally a little vague, but I think with you, it'd be really great to talk about just from your lens, like what, what has been your, your experience with management, I think, uh, specifically to start and how has that transitioned over into leadership for you? Because I think, I mean, they're both related, but not necessarily the same thing. And, you know, starting in your career more explicitly in architecture and now all the way to where you are now with Slack and having your own uh, side projects and side businesses, um, it would be great to kind of start there, I think. I think there's a lot to unpack there, right? I'm old enough in my career to say that I've had, I've definitely had good managers and good leaders and that I've had individuals that I've struggled with, right? I have managed up to a team of 12 at one point. And then the AIA has afforded me um, various different instances to run and share committees upwards of 20, 25 people that I think have also informed how I manage in my nine to five work job, if anyone really works nine to five these days, but, you know, that I take back to my management role. I think, you know, I think inherently as people progress through their career, there is a time where they ultimately become managers unless they find a career path that allows them to be an individual contributor. I think stepping into leadership is just a little bit different. I think it's taking, it's like, it's management on steroids, but I think it's also having a very different perspective or a specific perspective on where you would like an organization to go and then figuring out the pathways to implement that rather than purely just like managing a team to to an end or means. Is that what you were looking for? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's a good start because like you mentioned individual contributor, which I'm actually not sure outside of, outside of, Out of uh, outside of tech. <laughs> yeah, outside of tech or maybe other business scenarios, whether individual contributor is actually a well-known phrase. So maybe you can explain a little bit about what that means or, you know, in relation to some other of the terms that are. So I think um, at a lot of different organizations, and my husband works for a utility company, so they talk about individual contributors too. So it's not, it might be new to the architecture profession, not necessarily new to other organizations. There's two different mechanisms for you to grow in your career. One as an individual contributor, and then one through a management level. Those that tend to grow through as an IC really ultimately do so by becoming a deep expert in a subject matter it then requires like, so you might be the sustainability expert in the firm, right? So rather than managing one project or a handful of projects, you grow up and you, um, you contribute to the firm by using, spreading that expertise across all of the architecture projects. And that's usually how the individual contributor mechanism for growth uh, and professional development works in architecture as opposed to management where you then like manage a team or um, imagine manage a region, you know, and you go up to principal and partner from there. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. And, and I think the, what, what you're also suggesting is, you know, this idea that, that both can exist as long as that there is a career path designed for them, right? Organizationally, firm leadership really is to, you know, and, and, and that is to say that that makes sense in an organization 
of a certain size yeah. that can sustain that growth for someone. Obviously, you might not need a sustainability expert or, this is, or that kind of role might already be within firm leadership as opposed to when you're in a much smaller firm because that could right. be more of a differentiator for you or, or, or not. But yeah. I mean, I think there is a way for it to exist externally in small firms, right? Like, like I think if you really want to be an individual, like if you want to go deep in one area of expertise and that's what you want to do to grow your career, then I think in order to have that role and, and small and medium-sized firms, you have to do so as like an outside consultant, right? That they would regularly bring in as needed. But then unfortunately you end up wearing other hats because then you're essentially managing your own business to mm. that degree. But there is a there is a role. But George, like you said, you know, you have to have a you have to be a sort a firm of a certain size to really carry those type of individuals across projects. And those individuals can absolutely be billable. I think some of the misnomer is that like those individuals aren't billable. Like there's a way to create billable hours for those individuals. So you're not carrying them on overhead. And what has been your experience so far, you know, working at a, a company like Slack and in your role as senior experience designer? Maybe with that, you can explain a little bit about what that means, what your day-to-day looks like, and some of the differences you've already seen. So right now, I would say that the role that I'm playing at Slack is more that of an individual contributor. So I am helping. So experience design at Slack is internal. It is not on the engineering side. I'm on the business operations side. But it's essentially... How do we ensure a consistent and well-maintained employee experience across our global offices, as well as throughout our now now distributed workforce, right? So my day-to-day, like today, I talked to the VP of finance, I talked to the VP of operations, I talked to several regional workplace managers about their needs, and I'm helping shape policies and processes relative to the return to work, but also you know, what do our design guidelines for our future offices looks like? And how do we shape our real estate strategy for the future of offices when we come off of COVID, right? So for me, it's a really exciting place to be. I'm slowly adding to my team just because like I need a data analyst. I already have a data analyst, but you know, so I've just recently added a data analyst because we're going to be using that a lot more to make our decisions. And it's something that I did in the past as a workplace, an external workplace consultant. And I don't actually, sorry, George, I've lost track of the original question now. You're going to have to reframe for me. No, I, I, think, I think it's just more, it's more to do like what, like what have been the differences you've seen. I mean, I think there's actually is a difference in the sense of like what you just described with the work. It's what, what you're describing in a way is a role that's very initiatives based, right? There's like a scope of work of something that needs to get done or in relation to like longer, let's say longer planning, right? There's initiatives you want to do for next year and you're sort of like planning for them. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's likely, except for, you know, the recent with, with COVID now, that's basically a new project that's probably started that didn't exist before that's just been reprioritized. But essentially there's this idea of more like projects that in a firm might be more like non-billable work, right? That there's like this organ, like things that the organization itself needs in order to be more effective or more efficient in the future. It's part of what your role entails, as opposed to like, if you were still at a firm, it'd be very project oriented. And so I'm actually very interested in that difference, right? Because it, it does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I guess there's, there's several ways to look at it, right? So I'm at a SaaS company. So software as a service much like Monograph is a SaaS company. So we're not necessarily tracking hours in the same way that architecture firms track hours, right? So it's not considered necessarily overhead work. The alternative though, is that I did work at an architecture firm called MK Think running their design strategy group was essentially doing very similar type of work, but for consultants. So that didn't, or I was consulting to other organizations. So we were able to do that in a non-overhead sense, but I wasn't, it wasn't internally for MK Think, it was for other organizations. I do think you have to be at a certain size. I think the person that usually holds my role at a small to medium-sized firm is a person that's wearing many hats, right? So yeah. they're doing a lot of other things. It's like the, the principles might be the ones that are more holding, I mean, at, at a certain size, right? They're, they're kind of ones right. that are thinking more about the initiatives that need to happen. Um, to focus on the business itself. 
off camera, we had, we had a we had a pretty good, uh, interesting conversation about this in terms of, you know, seeing your role as an individual contributor in what the kind of things you work on in Slack, but also the potential of individual contributors within a firm to also work on the business side, right, of a firm as well. So as to say, like, one could look at your, an architecture firm could look at their business as to say, like, we hire very talented people and we can empower those people to work not just on projects and, and obviously time constraints on projects is definitely uh, super important, but also like being able to understand like, well, what kind of passions can we pull out from team members such that they can work on things that are actually for the, for the progress of the business. And sometimes you hire somebody that like is also interested in marketing or they might be interested in actually learning about the financial aspects of running the business. Have you seen sort of the, I don't know, both at your role uh, previously before Slack or even at Slack, the kind of the benefit of that or the possibility of that and the, how that could play out for a firm? Yeah, I mean, so, and I've, I've written about this and I've talked about this a little bit previously, so excuse the repeat, but I think, I mean, the interesting thing to me that happened at orientation at Slack, and we have a week-long orientation process because we onboard new people every week. So it's very in-depth. But one of the things that resonated with me that I was never told by any architecture or design firm that I work for is that you have the ability to contribute and make this business better from day one, Mm -hmm. right? Even in the daily work you do. So even in the operations and processes, like there's an ability for you to tell us how to do things quicker, better, faster, make sure you have that voice and make sure you tell us. So I think our conversation went around, I mean, there's the the old notion that you know, you're an intern, you're a first year at a firm, you're going to be stuck with the bathroom details, right? And if I look back, I'm like, I don't know how many hours my principal set aside for me to work on that specific bathroom detail. So if I went over those hours for any reason, and I am putting the project in jeopardy, I just had no line of insight to that. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, so we're, talk, we're talking about project management and the ability for people, for everyone in your firm to contribute to the bottom line. I think that it helps to have some transparency around how many hours you have set against the job and to communicate that down to even the people that you just hired yesterday saying, we've given you 40 hours roughly to get X, Y, and Z done. If you go over those 40 hours, then the profit margin on our product, like our product's going to suffer. And, you know, that's going to cut into bonuses that cuts into anything else that we can give you as an employee, because now we've overestimated or we've wrongfully estimated, or you've taken more time than we anticipated that you would will, because we are so time-driven in architecture. Mm -hmm. So how do you, in addition to telling them you have 40 hours to deliver on this task, tell them, give them the freedom to say, if you know a way to do this, get to the same end, quicker, smoother, better, write some code, do some scripts, make it a repeatable process, Mm -hmm. whatever, just give them the freedom to play that out and to change the way the firm does things and to do it within those constraints. You just, you still have to do it within the 40 hours, but show me, if you can show me a way to do it quicker, faster, better, that means that we get more profit on the back end. And I don't feel like we communicate that out enough, especially to the younger people in the firm. And if we do communicate it out, we don't give them the freedom to try a different way to do it. And that that freedom is actually, um, it's interesting how just giving someone permission to fail is like you can get so much more out of them. Not even just talking about productivity, just like like they show up more in, in a different way. Like I remember um, early on when I was interning at uh, Architectonica, I was fortunate that I was able to work in the landscape team, which is, uh, uh, we could have a whole different conversation about like the cultural aspects of landscape firms versus architecture ones. But the interesting thing is I got near the orientation. I, you were basically not told, not, not with the same is saying like, hey, you're free to fail here. But essentially, like we were told in a very similar way, like you are free to like to experiment and to like actually try new things. And you have that kind of support with it. And that was kind of a weight lifted off my shoulders at the time. And I think that's something that like if there's, you know, hopefully part of this discussion for those that are joining us, you know, if there's like things that you could probably take away from this conversation and apply to your own, how you're thinking about your own firm or whatnot, I think being able to, if you try giving your employees the sense of freedom of being able to go 
and fail. And by that, it just means like make attempts, like try something. Don't wait for, you know, an answer necessarily. Go find it and like try it out and come back. Like I think that ends up creating an impact, a substantial impact to the day-to-day operations of the business. Have you seen, Evelyn, like the, uh, this topic of transparency, because we're talking a little bit about it from, from the architect side, what, how does that manifest at a, at a company like Slack or in, in your own team? I mean, we could go back to the product, right? So we have so many, con- like, um, and I don't want to necessarily make this about Slack either, but I, I mean, the interesting thing about, especially in a remote work situation where conversations are happening in emails or even in direct messages, like texts over phone, is that, you know, you're missing out on any conversation that you are not arbitrarily either left off from or just not included for whatever reason. I think the product itself, so we have one internal channel that includes all of our stakeholders, and that could include anyone who, from a summer intern to like a VP of finance. I mean, the thing is, everyone always sees what's going on on a project all the time. So that allows them to even say like, yeah, have you guys even thought about doing it differently this way, right? And then they can also learn from the process. Mm. So I think that's the biggest change for me. And, you know, I'm just lucky enough to be at a company that is truly empathetic to the needs of all their employees, right? We've had conversations about how COVID has provided a less, like a more informal professional conversation that you tend to have because because you're not dressing the same, you Mm. know, at home as you would at work. But like all of our, I've seen a lot of our, like our C-suite individual, like Stuart showed up and on all hands and talked about his dog, you know, with his dog in his lap. Like all, I've seen all the VPs talk about like their children have shown up on the calls. You know, they're all very empathetic to everything that other individuals are going to. And then they're also this notion of like, we have an AMA channel, right? So an ask me anything channel. And the promise is that you will get a response from an executive team member or a group of people that have executive capabilities to make change within 24 hours of posting a question to the AMA channel. Hmm. So if there is a generation, a Z generation in there who's just like, yeah, I I understand that you're doing a lot to support um, parents and caregivers right now because a lot of our leadership team is at that point in their life. But don't forget about us who mm. like are living alone in isolation during COVID and can't even open our windows because we have wildfires, you know. So don't forget about our health and all this too. And then they're very responsive to kind of any mentions that come in that channel as well. So I think just the ability to have open communication freely, both at the business level as well as the project level, really helps enable everyone to contribute contribute their best self. And I also think it's, I mean, when you talk about employee retention, it's one thing to say, like, I did this little piece on our project. It's another thing to say, while doing that piece on the project, I've also helped the firm do this. And, and now the firm has adopted what mm. changed that. So, like, now I feel more connected to the firm because I, they've adopted something that I firm-wide, you know, something that I have helped develop. So I think, you know, that does, it's it's an interesting time to be talking about employee retention, but if we were in a more competitive state, I would hope that would help with employee retention. There's actually a a great question, I think, that ties into this that's pertinent. Someone asked, as an early professional, how can you convince your boss to give you the freedom to try something when they're hesitant to share information like you described? I think, I mean... It's hard, right? And a lot of why I am involved in the AIA, and George, I know you wanted to cover all my facets. So a lot of why am I am involved in the AIA is because a lot of the leadership of our firms, if you look at them, especially if you look at the older firms, are still, you know, the old white guys, or they, they think a certain way, or, you know, the transparency that you hope for, you're just not going to find, right? I think you need to be entrepreneurial about your career and how you approach these type of questions. So if you're asking for that information, you need to tell them, you need to explain to them why 
knowing that information is helpful for you to be more productive in that job. And by you being more productive, then you are giving, essentially giving more money back to the firm. So I think if you can phrase it that way, you might be able to open up that conversation. There are definitely firms out there that I'm not going to name any firms. That's just like the, the, the leadership is inherent and that's, you know, you're going to have to go to a different type of firm to get that type of transparency. But I think, George, what you and I are here to do, though, is also convince the leaders of firms that like this is a good thing for them, yeah. in addition to talking to young architects and to emerging professionals about like how to grow in their firm. Yeah, and I, th- I think like there's, there's other, other ways to, to even approach this too, where it's like, so, so let's say you're in a situation where it's very difficult to convince or, or just outright asking for certain information is not as easy. I think making the case, a logical case for what is it that you're trying to do? So in the context of this question where it's like a freedom to try something, right? I've, I've seen very good examples of people that I've talked to or more advise where it's like, if you take the problem that you're trying to address and you break it down and you say, here's the business case. And I know that even thinking about business case can be somewhat foreign uh, in, in, in architecture, but it actually is very helpful to structure your argument in a way that says, you know, if we're able to, here's the current state, here's where we're at today so that everyone has that kind of baseline agreement. Like if no one can agree on the current state, we can't really do anything, right? Um, so if we agree on the current state and we agree that these are the challenges that we're facing, in slide two of your presentation, you would say like, here is the potential solution that we can do. And then you would say like, this potential solution would lead to X, would lead to Y or whatever. Um, here are the benefits of implementing this. Then slide three would say, here's the plan of action to do this. So what you're essentially doing is removing the, the, the kind of burden of thinking about the problem away from the person that you're presenting it to. It's not like they, because a lot of times people are going to tell you no, because they don't know. They don't know what the outcome will be. And so it, unless you take the time to really walk them through that, it ends up being, you know, it's just too scary, too unknown to whatever. So by doing that in a kind of four or five slide presentation that just clearly states what the problem is, what the opportunity is, and how you can go address that opportunity by doing a series of concrete things on a certain timeline with whatever hours you have to be able to invest in that, then I think it's much easier for, for, for the person on the other side to receive that, take it away, dive a little bit deeper, ask you questions back to like understand it, and then you get them closer to saying yes. If it's just kind of like, hey, I wanna try this something out, and you're in a culture where just by doing that's not enough, I think this is one, one of the ways that I've seen actually play out very well. Yeah, I mean, I think you can also just be proactive, right? Like if there's an opportunity to say like, I did this, and if you're really passionate about like, there is absolutely a better way to do this, then do it the other way and then just show, do it after hours if you're willing to do that. Yeah. And then just just hold up the two and say, and show them, you know, yes. this is how we usually do it. And I just wrote this script Sorry, I've I've not I will I've not touched AutoCAD or Revit since two thousand five. So yeah. but like I just you know, I just wrote the script and I was able, you know, and you can now run this on all of our projects and with a push of a button you can do the exact same thing and just go ahead and build it out. And then I think that one any I don't know a principal that doesn't like initiative, right? Taking self initiative and then two, you are showing them like they cannot refute something that you haven't tried yet because you did it. Mm, that's very true. The self-initiative one is great, but definitely in the context of some organizations where maybe the resource investments way higher than just like yeah. going and doing a script, you want to like get the, get a little more concrete, but yeah, I would, I would defer to what you're, what you're suggesting like a hundred percent, almost every time if the, the stakes aren't high, right. If it's not like doesn't take too much resources, and sometimes you just need to build it up too, like, right? Like every, every time mm-hmm. you show them that you can deliver on something new, then they're going to be willing to risk more on you. Yes. So. Yeah. And so, but then the other question is always just like, well, how can, you know, that, that's talking to the individual, right? Uh, but then the flip side is like, how can an organization enable that kind of, or make it very clear that like, hey, we're looking for people that take initiative or we hired you to take initiative or, and if there's, if there's something broke, fix it, you know, don't just let it stay there. 
you know, I think that, that that's very, very productive. Um, and I, I guess it'd be great to talk a little bit about your, your, your new kind of initiative, uh, your new project, which is the kind of, or I don't know how new it is. It seems like it's been ramping up more, uh, more recently with the practice of architecture. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what that's about? Yeah. So the practice of architecture has been an evolution of sorts, but, and I, and I've been known to say the architecture profession is X number of recessions away from being extinct. I've been in AIA leadership long enough and I've been through enough mini recessions, big recessions to say, you know, to believe that we need to do something differently in architecture. The construction industry is very cyclical. It's one of the most cyclical economic cycles in history. So there will always be times when people are building. There will be always be times when we aren't building. Historically, architects have always suffered when our clients aren't building. So how do we provide additional services? How do we design our practices in a way where we are valuable to our clients in when they aren't building. So a part of this, and we've talked a little bit, is about the work that I did even at MK Think as a design strategist, which was unreal. It was building related, but it, it was unrelated to actually having a capital project shovels in the ground. But what are additional services that architecture firms can provide to their clients that retain their relevance and go beyond the building? And the great thing you know, a lot of people, there are some people in the industry, even though I have, I'm a licensed architect, that will say that I don't do architecture. Fine. If that's what they want to believe, that's fine. But my argument is by adding these additional services to your firm structure, to your business practices, how you do that, you'll ultimately end up having a, a gateway into doing more buildings with those clients in the long run. And you'll be making more money off of a single client if you're able to offer them any services. So, so the practice of architecture is really about how do we evolve our practices to remain relevant, you know, and then really just how do we give architects education? George, you're doing this by providing angel investing, but like how do the big goal would be like for practice of architecture to be an accelerator and incubator for new ideas coming out of firms and then helping them with go to market on the non-building side. It might be a product that supports the building industry or a process or an operations or something that supports, helps the clients understand that. But, but really that's the big goal. So to make enough money to put towards, you know, new ideas or fledgling companies that are coming out of these firms and really expand that. That's great. It seems like, you know, with, with this idea that like uh, of additional services, in just conversations with, with several different people, I've, I've come to the conclusion that ultimately a lot, a lot of what architects are doing is there's a lot of conversation around architecture having a sort of a, a marketing problem to some degree or that um, what are people, it's a hard, the industry is having a hard time communicating the value of its worth. And to some degree, I, I do agree to that in the sense that like, what architects fundamentally are doing is managing risk. In, in my perspective, it's like one of the core, whether you're buying a house, renovating a house or whatever, or, or, or an office space or, or whatnot, you're looking at an architect as a almost fiduciary that is responsible to help you navigate. I think you just what? killed like all the designer dreams out there by saying that architects manage <laughs> I know, I know. It's tough, but, you know, it can look good, too. I mean, risk can look, uh, that's a weird thing to say, but risk can look uh, very, very attractive and can be uh, aesthetically pleasing. But it's, it's just like, it depends on what customer it is, right? At a certain scale, like if you're an architect that works on residential, you're actually different. You're not even, to some degree, you're probably seen more as a therapist, right? Because you're typically, a lot of what our small-time architects talk about or small firm size architects talk about is, is, that when they're working with residential, it's like that. You're just kind of ma managing personalities, managing couples that are like arguing over what, what finishes right. to apply to their house. But even then, there's still the, the, you're still assessing them and you're trying to help them make a good decision because no matter what point of, of whether, what scale of project you're working on, all of them are at the end of the day, come down to financial decisions that people are making and entrusting you, you know, architects to help them navigate. And no matter what kind of budget we're talking about here, it's still, whether they care less about what's being spent or not, I, th I still think like this is a big component to what, what uh, architects are delivering as a service. So I'm wondering if it makes sense that really what architects 
should be doing is really understanding more so the life cycle of the projects that they want to work on and start to find how their additional services could bleed into either areas where, um, you know, as an example, a personal friend of mine started a firm and started to notice that a lot of people were coming to him after they had already picked a brand new house to move into. So he went and he got his broker's license to start to advise people right when they're at the beginning stages of trying to find a place. So he can advise them. He can say, look, what you're looking for, whether it's a commercial space or whatever, here are the constraints that you actually want to look out for, for what you're trying to do. And then not only was he making, is he making, you know, a cut from the brokerage side, but then he can also advise them on like, well, I can actually go ahead and actually design and build this out for you. So it's like looking at this, like the, the life cycle of the steps that people take to finally come to you or after you and, and figure out how you can provide value there. I think like Dave Fano and one of your, in your podcast, we should, we should say that you do have a podcast that's pretty fantastic. Uh, Dave Fano, uh, who is the chief growth officer of WeWork and a founder of a com- consultancy called Case, he talks about how you can go into, like why are, he, he questions why architects aren't going into facilities management or like yeah. after delivery as a big, a big area of value because most of the costs of a project are actually in maintenance, not in the design or development of it. Um, and, and, and architects have a special expertise that they can deliver in that, in that area of the life cycle too. So is, is this essentially what you're also trying to help people kind of manage with when it comes to your services? I mean, honestly, yeah, yes and no. So I think um, yes in, in the way that those type of things you are talking about are are the expansion of traditional services, right? That it, that by, and this becomes a lot easier, by the way, with the internet of things and all the sensors that you can put into buildings and actually doing that, that management without being on site every single day and making sure your buildings are getting used the way that they were intended to get used. So they actually perform the way they perform. You designed for a lower air circulation because you anticipated the operable windows actually being open and closed. And if the if the residences or if the people in them don't actually operate the operable windows, then it's not going to perform how you promised it would. So I think I think there's a lot of benefit to expanding your services there, but that's still related to a building that you help them deliver or a potential project that they already have in mind. I think there's opportunities. And so the the podcast is Practice Disrupted. Atelier Cho Thompson is arguably a forward-thinking architecture firm in the sense that they also do branding, graphics, wayfinding. But they've found a way that like they literally started working with one VC firm on their branding and graphics. And then that translated into an architecture project, right? But branding and graphics and signage or branding and graphics is completely unrelated. They're usually like, it's different, right? Than um, anything you would do for architecture, right? It's a different expertise. There's different branding and graphic companies out there. But they decided that they, it was something that they're interested in doing. They had a portfolio. They came off of doing infographics for the equity by design, the first official survey that came out of AIA San Francisco and their EQXD. I think it's now the Jedi Group. But um, they had that portfolio and they used that to create a new service providing just rent, you know. And if that's all they ever do, that's still a project that they were able to provide a company that didn't necessarily needed a building, but it provided them that little bit of extra revenue to help them get by to the next project, right? Because as a principal, you're always chasing the pipeline. So that was just another thing that they could drop in their pipeline and deliver upon. And if and when a client is ready to move to a building, then that's a new potential contact Mm -hmm. that they've established. So I think there are additional services that architects could provide completely unrelated to a building, but is within our natural skill set that may or may not lead to a building, but definitely helps with the pipeline, definitely helps with the revenue and the profitability of the firm. And ultimately, I think helps you build more client relationships. So you do ultimately get more building projects when and if they're ready to build. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example. It's, it's interesting, too, because actually there's a lot of firms that do branding work, 
that are seeing their services extending into physical spaces more and more, right? Like you're likely to find more of a marketing agency doing a pop-up installation. I know, right? Versus the architects doing the other, going the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's, and that's very interesting because most of the times too, you know, obviously you kind of look at the work that you're doing strategically and you say like the work for the VC, it, it makes a lot of sense because they have financial relationships with several different companies. So if you build a great relationship with them, then it's likely that they could introduce you to some of their portfolio companies, thus leading to more pipeline when you look at it from that lens. But from the other lens, let's say of that marketing agency example, like if you're doing something like a, if you pop up installation for a brand, right, that gets multiplied over and over several instances. They typically don't just do it one time. They do Mm -hmm. it across different cities or, or whatnot. So you look at, it's just the, the kind of, the lens right now today strategically for most organizations is to understand that there's more players trying to encroach on architecture than there are architects trying to encroach into other domains. And I really struggle with that. And I don't know why that is and why we take this viewpoint, but that's what we really struggle with in the AIA. Like, I'm tired of people saying we've given up the title, we've given up scope of work to GCs, we've given up scope of work to PMs, we've given up scope of work to CAs. And I'm like, okay, what are you going to do about it? Like, <laughs> well, what, what pieces are we going to take back? What new pieces are we going to deliver? The AI is an organization and it's just one mechanism to maybe take back those services or provide templates to help you talk to businesses about how you can provide those services better than them. But like really you are your best microphone. So I don't know. I think maybe we need to be teaching more people to fish, but I also think for whatever reason, architects don't tend to to take to reclaim things or to like step in other people's pool or pond or whatever you want to call it. And and we just kind of let people steal from us. And in order for us to remain relevant, we're just, we're going to have to start fighting back. Yeah. And I I do wonder if this idea of like, um, you know, one of the things that underscores the current state is the environment of liability. And so a lot of, a lot of firms might say, well, you know, there's just more exposure to liability if you do other things, or that's why a lot of uh, specialty firms have arisen to sort of offload of that, that risk to other like facade consultants or other types of consultants that can be more specialized. But even then, you know, what's fascinating to me is that the the other entrants in the space, right, they start to sort of take away and encroach on them. They don't see it as an issue. They kind of, they bake it into the model, right? Like if you're doing a prefab construct, like, you know, the rise of like more prefab construction startups that has happened in the past couple of years or, or more vertically integrated companies, they just bake that risk into the business plan, right? So they understand that that is just the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. And, but it's a, they figure out ways to manage that risk over time. So yeah. what, how can, how can a firm basically adopt a more, not risk, risk on, but just more, you know, less concerned, right, about, about how, how... Yeah, well, I, I also have to think, so obviously, I think there's, there's this level of mentality baked into, so when you get your license, it's not about how good of a designer you are, it's, like, it's about your ability to, t- to protect the health, safety, and welfare, right? I think that if you look at our buildings, our buildings are, pro- like, this is typical, our buildings are our prototypes, they're usually all one of a kind, and there's a, hef- there's a hefty, the reason why I will never stamp a drawing is because I never want to be responsible for anything that like I am not taking care of directly over the length of the period of time, at least usually 10 years that I'm responsible mm-hmm. for, for the work against that. So that is a really risky project, but the strategy projects that I was delivering on at MK Think while I was there was talking about like, where should San Francisco Unified School District, where should they think about putting a centralized kitchen to deliver at a higher efficiency, at lower cost, meals to their meals to their student population? Because there's so many students that rely on meals as a source of food, especially during the school year. So, I mean, where is the risk in telling somebody where they might want to put a kitchen? Yeah, yeah. It's much you less know, for like, sure. Yeah. So the services that we deliver are like, 
the services that architects can actually deliver on are a lot less risky than what our core competency is, than what our traditional practice model serves, right? A lot of, you know, we always talk about how management consulting and a lot of what I was delivering was really on the management consulting side of things, you know, it's a report that if they don't believe in any of it, they can shelve it or they could use it and get the, what I hope would be the value that they paid for my services on. But if, whether they use it or whether they not use it, like I've, I've removed myself from the implementation risk. So they paid me for the work that I delivered. They didn't pay me. I didn't promise them that they would yeah. save X percent by implementing but they hired me based on the fact that historically I have saved X percent on mm. the value that I bring, right? But that, I mean, what, that, that last point's almost critical though in that, in that instance, right? Because you have, you have numbers you can say with some level of confidence, which is, they're just the, the tools for measuring post-occupancy and the capacity to measure post-occupancy has just been, uh, it's very nascent still within the industry. Right. Yeah, but those also like need to be baked in. Like, yeah. frankly, like, right. So people are like, I don't get paid enough to do post-occupancy. Bake it in, tell your clients why you need to do this. Tell them how by doing this in every preceding project to them, it's made their project better. Like data is everything these days. So you need to, if you aren't baking it into the project, then I would say that you, that, that is an overhead spend for data that you can then use to market chase understand how what you're you're essentially investing in data like if you're not able to bake it into the product like to the revenue on the project then considering it an overhead investment in data for you to increase how you are delivering your product your building and if it's a good outcome then that's even more fodder for marketing and business development well, um, we have about 10 minutes left in this conversation. I want to open it up for some questions. Uh, we've, we've crossed so many different topics. Um, so if there's any, any questions that anybody has, let's uh, answer them. Well, well, some people are thinking um, about what to ask. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's fascinating. I think uh, pretty soon, hopefully, we'll, we're going to have a guest that's going to be t- deep diving into data with us and, and, and how, how it's being leveraged at, at, a, at a firm itself. I mean, what was very fascinating about my time at, at WeWork um, was how open data was throughout the entire organization and how it was being used to iterate on the product actively. Um, and it still is being used uh, to improve how spaces are being designed. And so you would see things like the utilization of conference rooms. Um, you'd see everything from like how uh, desks were selling in any given location. And that was accessible to everyone in the company to help them build on that, right? To like uh, unlock new initiatives. I do, so I do have a question here. Um, Evelyn, how do you think the practice of architecture will look in 10 years from now? What's your top prediction? <laughs> I think it depends. I think if we have a lot of entrepreneurs stepping in there, I think we'll see a lot of multidisciplinary practices. And my definition of multidisciplinary is not, as you can imagine, hospitality, education. That's the same thing, just different market sectors. So, so I, would, I would hope that we have a lot more multidisciplinary practices out there, that we are exploring areas where, where you know, rather than marketing firms impinging on what we're doing, that architects are out there doing actually more another definition of experienced design is like, you know, there's those experienced design firms that just do the VIP experience for Taylor Swift's concerts, right? But that is a built, temporarily built, delivered experience. So I would like to see us expanding into more areas. I would like architecture firms figuring out what are other SaaS models that they can deliver to their clients to continue a relationship after a building is built you know, helping them operate and maintain buildings. I, it depends. It depends on our appetite for moving fast and it depends on how entrepreneurial the leadership in architecture is. So I graduated my undergrad in 2002. So I've been in it now for nearly two decades. And unfortunately, I haven't seen that much push 
it's been interesting to see what COVID has done when it comes to just remote technology. And it's interesting to see the growth of building tech and VC deployment. So like the investment into build tech. But the sad thing is that a lot of those building technology firms are not coming out of people with architectural backgrounds. It's, again, it's other people with engineering backgrounds, other people who do facilities management without an architecture background saying this is an opportunity for me to jump in and get it done. At best case scenario, they're hiring architects, but right now there's a lot of people stepping in our space and we're allowing them to do that. So I would hope that we are smart enough to begin to begin to respond and step back. Do you foresee any external pressures that really might, whether it's like regulation or anything else like that, that could just be forcing functions for bigger change? Like, where do you think the biggest risk in the next 10 years are for the practice outside of just like these kind of players coming in? Do you think there's anything else that we should be looking at? I mean, I think there's like, I think we should pay more attention to how we structure our, to where and how we structure our, and our value and get paid upon our value, right? We are a time-based service. So, and if you think about it, the more time we spend, the more time, the more billable hours that we can put through a job, the more we get paid on a project, which is kind of bad because then you actually want to spend more billable hours, right? And the majority of those billable hours are usually in the construction documentation phase or the CA phase, but it's, it's not where our true value is, which is actually the, the SD and DD phase of the project. So, so I think we need to be more aware of the technologies and get willing to give into the technologies that allow us to embrace putting more money in the SD and DD side of things and to let go of like the, the hourly rate that we get paid mm-hmm. on the CA side. Because that's going to just continue to get commoditized by other people if we don't do it internally. So unfortunately, it is another thing of other people coming in. But I, I just think we just have to be more adaptable and actually get figure out a way to get paid on our true value rather than our, on the hours we spend. Yeah, and this is probably where it makes a lot of sense for firms to really look at their own talent base as a kind of hive mind to help think about these things. It is not necessarily just the leadership at the very top looking at at the problem, but it's also like trying to source of great ideas from everywhere within an organization. Because it could be, it could come from people with very various degrees of prior experience to working at a firm, or it could come from anywhere, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from past experience, even, I mean, even the things that are, even the things that new graduates are learning in school right now are super impressive to me, right? But like, I would hope that the firm leaders, whether you're a project manager or a firm leader, that you, that everyone in the firm sees the value that these new that the younger people are bringing in with the new ideas and new approaches and new technologies that they're experiencing in school that we have never had the opportunity to even play around with right Mm. do you think there's something about just the services because i mean you bring up this point too also about like um you know highlighting the value that we provide and i sometimes wonder whether I'm very curious of really great examples of firms that have amazing customer relationships and what that looks like. Because sometimes it can be about the actual value, can be the perception of the value through like, you know, the design of the work and like the accolades that it gets post building or whatnot. But then there's also just that kind of like, how good was it to work with this firm through that process? And what, what, you know, what techniques and what things that a firm can do today that doesn't have to be necessarily about opening up new lines of revenue or new services, but just about improving their experience itself. Yeah, improving the client experience. I have always recommended, it hasn't always been heated, but even if you're a firm, this is, this is much harder for a sole practitioner to do, maybe partner with another sole practitioner. But at the end, like as part of your project closeout process, you should get somebody in the firm unrelated to the project to interview the client and ask the client to be very open and transparent and like, you know, what what was the best parts of working with? And hopefully they feel free to talk to you because you, they don't have a working relationship with that person, right? So what was the best things? What, what did we do well? What could we do better? And how do we continue to improve upon that? And then you can even, if you want, I mean, you can even, when the next promotion cycle comes up, if your firm is 
tailored enough to have all of these things in place that like what they hear back from the client can be like also be a part of that cycle. But yeah, I mean, I don't think we've, I think firms are actually decent. They have a decent client experience. I struggle with firms that are like, we get a lot of our work 80, 90% from repeat clients because that means they rely on those repeat clients. So there, there is absolutely some risk in the majority of your revenue being dependent mm-hmm. upon repeat clients. So, I, so to some extent, I do think firms do have a great customer experience, but I don't know if they're actively trying to improve upon it or if it's just like, and I don't want to go to like an old, like a cigars on the golf course type of like thing happening. Like it's just like a, a boys club thing or like a, I don't need to be sexist about it, but like, you know, is, is it just like an old camaraderie thing that mm. is like helping keep that relationship going? Or is it is it one where like they actually really see you as a strategic partner and maybe it's both and it doesn't have to be and or or. But I, I think there are opportunities for us to continue to make that client relationship better. I also think that I would just be wary of the fact that if you are reliant on 80, if you find that your portfolio is 80 to 90% repeat work, then what happens when, when you lose those, those clients that keep on coming back? So. Yeah, well, that's really good food for thought for the uh, practitioners in, in, in attendance today. Um, we're at time. So I just want to thank you so much, Evelyn, for, um, for taking the time to chat with me. And uh, we, I think we covered a lot of different topics. It was, uh, it was great to kind of go through both your career, but also all the all the interesting facets of it. And yeah, we're really thankful for you to be here. And oh, I hope people found that helpful. And thank you so much for having me, George. All right. Thanks, everyone, for your time. And uh, until next one. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us here at Monograph. We're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to medium-sized firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. It's a great way to actually see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. It helps you understand where you are on any given project, what your schedules, budgets look like. You can start a free trial today at monograph.io or watch a live demo with Robert, our CEO. Every Friday, he walks through the product and answers any questions that you have. Can I give Monograph a quick plug? Uh, sure. So, so in all the softwares, especially if you're worried about adoption and you know the transformation to kind of digital practice, never underestimate the effect of a good UX. Good user experience will carry your users into the platform and the software with embedded practices in ways that you can't imagine. Monograph with their UX is by far, I think, much more adapted to the type of project management in the industry than kind of out-of-the-box software elsewhere. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we invest a lot of time and energy just trying to make sure that people have a really good onboarding experience. And we've released some new embedded support options that are well-received right now. So thanks for that. Really appreciate it. The customer cares of where it's at. Yeah. Josh agrees here in the, in the channel. That's awesome, Josh. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.